the long-term oriented companies outperform their peers on really quite a large number of metrics, 47% more revenue growth. 81% higher economic profit and more jobs created in those companies, 12,000 more jobs created by the, by the long term on average. But also market cap and earnings growth, right? 36% outperformance in earnings growth as well. So across a wide variety of metrics, the longer term oriented firms outperform their peers. That was Michael Bershon discussing the advantages of CEOs taking a long-term view. I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. In today's episode, we're talking about a dilemma that many new CEOs face. Should they focus on showing quick results, or should they invest in the company's long-term future, even at the expense of short-term returns? We're joined today by Michael and his colleague, Carolyn Dewar. Carolyn is a senior partner based in our San Francisco office who leads our global CEO and board excellence service line. Michael is a senior partner in our London office and co-leads the strategy and corporate finance practice across Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Michael has also helped lead our research on CEO transitions. Carolyn and Michael will share with us some new research based on work conducted with the McKinsey Global Institute. Welcome to you both. Carolyn, can you kick us off by describing the genesis of your research and how you think it'll help CEOs focus their time and effort in the early years of their tenure? Sure, absolutely. Our discussion today is part of a broader research effort that we've been investing in over the last decade or so, really into the CEO role and what makes for excellence in that role. And we've been looking at it across four stages of the CEO journey. Preparing to be a CEO, maybe you're a couple of years out, a new CEO in their transition, what does that first year or two look like? What matters most? And then for mid-tenure CEOs, what are those moments of truth that they really want to get right that can change the next trajectory of their tenure? And then folks towards the tail end of their tenure who are preparing the successor and thinking about what comes next. And so as part of that broader journey, we really wanted to dive in and say, in the first few years in role, what matters most and how should new CEOs Think about this mix of short-term delivery and setting up their companies for success in the future. Thanks, Carolyn. Um, Michael, can you talk a little bit about some of the findings from the MGI research on short-term versus long-term focus? Yeah, absolutely, Sean. So what MGI tried to do was identify a set of markers that could be uh, externally observed in financial metrics that pointed to more short-term oriented companies or more long-term oriented companies. So, for example, the the hypothesis is that long-term firms will invest more and more consistently than short-term firms, right? And we can then look for that in the ratio of capital expenditure to depreciation. You know, you might have a hypothesis that short-term firms will do uh, whatever they can to hit their short-term external targets, whereas long-term firms are more willing to miss them if needed, right, if if that's ultimately in the longer-term interest of the company. Uh, And you might, we measure that by looking at the incidence of beating earnings per share targets by less than two cents or missing them by less than two cents, right, so sort of that that degree of sort of quarterly by quarterly focus, is it present or, or, or absent? We also looked at earnings quality, accruals as a share of revenue. We looked at margin growth, uh, the difference between earnings growth in the, uh, you know, in the bottom line and revenue growth in the top 
or uh, earnings per share, right, between earnings per share growth and maybe true underlying uh, earnings growth to look at the impact of buybacks and things like that. When we used all these markers, we, uh, we identified a set of uh, companies from 615 large mid-cap publicly listed companies uh, that we could split into short-term oriented and long-term oriented over a 15-year period. So why did you decide to focus on this particular issue? If you talk to almost any chief executive, certainly of a, of a publicly listed company, um, they will say they feel quite significant pressure uh, to deliver short-term performance, right? And that pressure, while always significant, uh, has been increasing, right? And, and I think actually in recent years, since 2016, even more so perhaps with the rise of activist investors. So short-termism uh, and pressure on short-term uh, performance uh, was always large and is growing. You know, wherever you are in the world, including in developing markets as well, where, you know, sometimes people think that the capital markets there are, are different. They are different, but actually there are enduring similarities uh, throughout this around essentially the increasing pressure on short-term performance. And that also translates into a duration in the top jobs for CEOs, five and a half years, um, pretty much on a, on a downward trend a couple of decades ago, much more like eight, nine years for chief executives. And so we tried to understand, look, people always say that this short-term focus uh, has negative consequences. Can we identify companies that are organized somewhat with more of a short-term focus, somewhat with more of a long-term focus? So what did you find? Did the research confirm your hypothesis? Uh, yeah, Sean. So absolutely. The long-term oriented companies outperform their peers on uh, really quite a large number of metrics. As you might expect, something like R&D uh, spend 50% higher in the long-term oriented companies. But then more outcome metrics, sort of 47% more uh, revenue growth, 81% higher economic profit growth, right, underlying economic profit, uh, more jobs created in those companies, 12,000 more jobs created by the, by the long term uh, on average but also market cap um, and earnings growth, right? 36% outperformance uh, in earnings growth as well. So across a wide variety of metrics, the longer-term oriented firms outperform their peers. Obviously, there are exceptions and these are averages, but sort of that's the, that's the conclusion of that work. So once you had evidence that a long-term focus improved performance and created more value, how did you then apply that to a CEO's actions? So what Carolyn and I and others have done in some of our CEO transition research is look at, in this data set, it's 600 chief execs over 10 years who stepped down from the S&P 500. So we, we can look at the whole tenure across a wide variety of industries. And what you find in this research is if we, we, we said, look, how many of these colleagues when they come in to a company that may be run in a short-term oriented fashion, do they pivot it to the long term, right? Do they say, look, let's worry less about the quarterly earnings. Let's think more about the long-term investment in R&D. And 4% of that group have done a pivot from they inherited a short term, and as a new CEO, they pivoted it 
to the long term, right? There are more who pivoted it at some point during their tenure. There are some who inherited a long term and kept the long term going. But there are, there are 25 who pivoted from short to long. So for those who made that successful pivot from short to long term, were there any commonalities among those CEOs? Um, two things are true, uh, we found about those chief executives who pivoted from short term to long term. They were more likely to be previous CEOs, to have more than one at bat in the group CEO position. They were actually more uh, likely to have previous industry experience. They almost always had experience in that industry. So in a sense, you know, I've understood the industry uh, it deeply. I've understood the challenges that that industry faces. Maybe I'm on my second at-bat, and I'm going to do things in a more thoughtful way going forward. You know, we, we measured how many strategic moves do these chief executives make early in their tenure, right? Strategic moves are everything from a strategic review to I reshuffle more than half the top team, I close a product line, I expand into a new geography, I do big M&A, um, those, those kind of things. Right? And what we found was that CEOs who pivoted to the long term, as you might expect, they had to pull more levers. Right? They transformed their company in the early years in a more aggressive fashion to make that pivot. Pivoting CEOs made 50% more strategic moves early in their tenure than those who didn't pivot. So are the CEOs who pivot their strategy toward a long-term focus rewarded by the markets? I wish the answer were absolutely they are massively rewarded for that pivot in the, uh, in the returns to shareholders they deliver during their short tenure. Uh, and the answer is, you know, they're not punished, but actually they're not rewarded uh, for that pivot. It is a delayed gratification. During that tenure, the bold move, the pivot to the long term, doesn't pay off for the individual CEO. If you track the company beyond that, it does actually pay off, right? And consistent with the Global Institute research, these companies benefit for the long term. But the chief executives who pivot short-term companies to long-term, which obviously takes a bunch of effort and you probably get some slings and arrows uh, during that, right? They actually don't get, uh, they don't generate that upside in total returns to shareholders. That upside accrues, understandably perhaps, over the long term uh, to some of their successors. Right? And so that sort of is what comes from this research. Long-termism does pay. It pays for individual chief executives, but it pays more in their legacy than in the performance during their tenure. Right? And so the questions that Carolyn and I have been wrestling with, you know, how, do we, how do you make that shift? How do we encourage that? How do you navigate from the short to long term? So what are some of your insights? Carolyn, um, how can companies and boards encourage that long-term value-creating focus in their CEOs, even if the rewards it might produce would only benefit their successors or perhaps their legacy reputation? Sure. No, absolutely. Um, it's, not, it's not an easy answer, right? It's clear, as you showed, Michael, in the research that companies, the economy, society benefits from the long-term view. But how is that at odds with the shorter and shorter tenures of CEOs? And as a new CEO in role, how do you strike that balance, right, between earning the mandate, maintaining your credibility and mandate as a leader because you need to deliver day-to-day, while setting your company up for, for future success and your legacy as well? Some of the things that, that we've observed and, and know from CEOs is important, starting with a strategic review early on and having an honest appraisal 
there's this notion of, from the research of having an industry view being critical to making bold moves, right? You actually need to know what the lay of the land is, whether you've been promoted from within as a CEO or whether you've come in from outside. How do you quickly get a view of the company, its opportunities and threats, the external market and where it might be going? But I think the honest appraisal is really key as well because it does take real courage and transparency to, with you and your leadership team to sit down and say, where are we really? And how are the decisions we're making today really setting up the company for longer-term success? But, but that, that top team and the CEO really holding up the mirror and saying, where are we and where do we need to go? And, and do we have the courage, even amongst our four walls, to have those tough conversations about some of the, the decisions we might need to make? So once you've laid that foundation of an honest appraisal, what does the CEO next have to do? You know, you translate that insight into what decisions we might need to make into some early bold moves. And what are those couple of moves that will set your company on a different trajectory, both in terms of its performance, as well as signaling to the market where it is that you're going. Part of this is is creating the mandate with your own organization, but a lot of it is also with the board and with the investor community, right? How do you set expectations um, if you're taking this longer-term view and get them comfortable with that? Well, making some of these bold moves that start to build momentum. Well, that's a challenge, especially if it will affect short-term performance. How should a CEO approach that? Michael, have you come across this in your work with top executives? Uh, I, I mean, it, it, my observation of some of the CEOs um, I've known who've navigated this successfully is kind of saying, look, um, and that's also why often they start with the strategic review. You know, what is the what is the art of the possible over what might be my tenure? And where do I want to end up? Um, and then thinking two things. One is actually let it's probably not a good idea to um, shoot the lights out in a kind of very, very aggressive performance orientation in the first couple of years. Unless I'm obviously if I'm in a turnaround situation or something like that. That, that that's of course different. But but some of the CEOs um, you know, I've, I've, I've worked with, I've been struck by how mindful they are of, you know, over the next year I'll deliver this, and that's probably good and good enough. And then we'll get to this, and that will deliver further upside. And then we'll think about digital, but let's sort of sequence, sequence the, the, the impact. And then the second thing I think that they're, uh, my observation will be they're quite good at is saying that, that there are some foundational things I need to do now. There are some battles I need to take on now that to position myself for the long term, right? Which may be, you know, how do I make certain changes in my management team? So that actually, if I know I want, if I know these functions are gonna really provide the impact in years four and five, I probably need to start recruiting now um, so I can bring someone in at the end, in, in, you know, at the end of year one. It takes year two for them to settle down so that I can, they can launch the ambitious agenda in year three that will really begin to bear fruit in year four and really be hitting its stride in year five. Right? And actually, if I don't start almost the search immediately, which means probably telling my you know, current functional head that maybe they don't necessarily have a sort of long-term future, I will miss that window. Right? And I need to act now to build that platform for year five, even as I'm also pulling the short-term levers right, to deliver some good news. 
So it seems like they need to be careful about sequencing both long and short-term moves. And once a CEO is now thinking about making that pivot to the long-term, how should he or she communicate that to the company's major stakeholders, especially their board and investors? Carolyn? This idea of communicating is so important early, right, and really aligning the mandate and the vision with your board, with investors, with, with the organization. And I think Michael hit on something, which is, the excellent CEOs paint that compelling picture of where we're headed, right? It's not just for growth's sake. There's some sort of rally cry or compelling image that can capture the hearts and minds and, frankly, the, you know, the, the buy-in of the broader stakeholder groups that you have. I'm thinking of one of my CEO clients who, when he came in initially, could have said, look, our company is going to be the best in class within our vertical of the industry, right? They're in, you know, a certain sector in the industrial sector. And that had historically been their ambition. We're going to be the best at this. This is what it's going to take to be the best. And when he came in and stepped back and did that strategic review, he actually recalibrated and reframed the level of ambition to say, we don't want to just be best in our vertical. We actually want to be in the top quintile of all industrial companies. And that did a couple of things. Obviously, it raised the ambition level of the, of the organization. It shifted the peer set that they were comparing themselves to. And so the vertical they'd been operating in wasn't necessarily best in class on a number of dimensions compared to the broader industrial sector. And he said, so thinking where, you know, the tallest shrub is not that great when we're standing in a, in a whole forest, right? So let's make sure we're comparing ourselves to the big giants that really matter. They changed the, the measures of success. They changed what that would mean in terms of M&A possibility of the, the types of customers they would serve, the kind of markets that they would be in. But it was a compelling vision that, that excited people both in terms of what it would be possible for the organization, but also the returns that would bring and the growth that that would bring. And that story became an anchor point as he went out to the street, as he went to his board, as he went to other constituents to say, you've been thinking about us too small. There's a much bigger, more exciting vision of who we can be. And here's what the roadmap there will look like. And of course, he had to rewind the clock and say, okay, so in the next year, two years, three years, here will be the markers that you'll know we're going down the right path. And here's what you should judge us for. He was sort of shaping the metrics of what he wanted to be assessed against. Here's what the right markers would be if you too are excited about this broader vision. So more just re reconfirming some of what you were saying, Michael, but this idea of start with the end in mind, get people excited, and then be very clear about some things they can look for from you on that journey. Mm. That was one. And, and, and um, one of the things, Carolyn, just to build exactly on what you were saying is I've in a sense, as you come in as a CEO, you, you've got to understand if you like, the board dynamics and the perception of the previous CEO. And then I think you can use data and diagnosis to change that in quite a smart way. Because sometimes previous CEO is seen as a great hero and you're coming in to continue. So then I've observed where the tone is much more, you know, we were all very lucky to have the previous person, couldn't be better, many strengths. There are obviously a few areas that we need to work on, and here's some of the data, right? Many of our people are nearing their retirement age. Let's look at the talent pipeline, right? And I've now mapped it and showed you that board. There are certain businesses that aren't doing so well. But then over the next couple of board meetings, the CEO kept coming back with, you know, and also... Now, as I get deeper into it, we should also just raise this, and we should raise this, and we should raise this. Somewhat, uh, you know, repositioning 
the view of the previous era. Right? And so the real challenge is, and we all know CEOs who, when they, for example, during their tenure, uh, were terrifically uh, celebrated, enormous uh, returns to shareholders. When they stepped down, they were sort of hailed as, as, as heroes, who perhaps now, with the benefit of, you know, 10 years, 20 years hindsight on the legacy, look less rosy. I know, Carolyn, you uh, do a lot of work with the McKinsey Organizational Health Index, for example, right? How can we diagnose the health of a company in a data-driven way that can say, well, while performance may be, you know, seemingly great, dear board, underlying health is actually much more kind of compromised. That sort of data-driven initial start for a CEO in the first few months, I think can provide them the opportunity then to get a mandate to, look, we actually need to invest for the future. So how do you align incentives so CEOs who make those investments in the future are recognized and rewarded for that smart, long-term value-creating approach? Very briefly, Sean. I mean, I think people are experimenting. Remuneration committees are experimenting with a variety of things, with longer-term clawbacks, with uh, stocks, obviously, with vesting periods. I think there's a bunch that we can all learn from venture capital and private equity firms and the way sometimes they, they align incentives. I sort of feel that, on average, most CEOs probably, if they do a decent job, are paid fine. Thinking about who are chief execs as you retain them, who care about things like legacy, right, who are oriented towards actually, I am going to want to um, be a pillar of the community in the next 10 or 20 years. I'm going to want my tenure to look better and better over time as I'm serving on other boards versus the company I was chief executive to is going to fall down just as I'm chairing or a non-exec elsewhere. I do think who we select will also, um, you know, affect long-termism as well as the more tactical incentives. So do you have any examples of CEOs who've navigated this successfully in terms of pivoting to the long-term agenda? Um, and anything that they did specifically to rally their organizations around the long-term as well? Sure, sure. I mean, let's, let's go back and forth. And obviously, without, yep. without naming names, I'm thinking of one in particular. And less about how we rally the organization, although we, we can talk to that. But it was, it was interesting to watch them navigate the investor community. And so they did a, quite a strategic review early on about who are our key investors that really matter, what are they solving for, what does they look like. And then they took a, a, a sort of stakeholder engagement model based on that segmentation and really over-indexed on spending time and attracting and developing the investors who were also taking a long-term view. And they were quite deliberate about it and spent real time um, building that community, appealing to that community. So rather than trying to convince people who would only ever care about the next quarter that there was a bigger vision, they actually said, well, who, is the, who are the group of investors we should go after who naturally will be aligned to what we care about? And it, I hadn't seen someone do it as deliberately as, as they did, and it was quite interesting. Michael, I don't know if you've seen anything similar. But. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's uh... – that's a ter terrific uh, example. So if you talked about these sort of, especially the investor side, just a couple of other illustrations on, on sort of different elements of this. One was a relatively new chief exec who sort of said, look, actually, the long-term value creation in this company, really a bunch of this company is actually in the long term, right? It's in, in sort of new businesses that we might create. And sort of what he said was, but I can't lose sight of the short term. 
And he changed the organization structure because previously um, it was all mixed together, right? And you had sort of leaders who reported to that chief executive who had to cover both the short term and the long term, you know, and, and the chief executive felt like what that means is that the, um, to be honest, everything is being shortchanged. And so he said, look, I actually want to be able to communicate to my people uh, and to everyone that really I see a horizon one, horizon two, horizon three for this company. And I'm going to have a horizon one leader, right? And you are the horizon one leader. I'm going to remove horizon two and three responsibilities from you. And your job is to ensure that the performance continues to go on the existing business so that we all actually have a long-term future. I'm going to elevate two new folks to the executive committee, one who covers Horizon 2 and one who covers Horizon 3. And so therefore, he, um, in particular, he elevated the Horizon 3 leader who was buried two layers down in the organization to say, you know, you are a peer member of the, of the management team. That also gave the CEO more time himself to focus on Horizon 3 because it's a direct report. Um, and actually, because he'd cleared the intray of the Horizon 1 leader, he could say much more, so you're going to focus on Horizon 1. You don't need to be distracted, and therefore I, as chief executive, don't need to worry so much about this because I have one of my best people exclusively focused on that. So he actually he did the pivot organizationally, and, and obviously then, as you were saying, to investors, but that, that was the organizational bit. That was fascinating. So once um, the CEO revamped the organizational leadership, what about resources? You know, should CEOs apply a similar type of different horizon approach to that as well? Sure. Yeah, we've hinted at it, but this point on reallocating capital is just such a crucial one. And one of the clear early moves, you know, Michael talked about reorganizing the, the labor, right, the organization structure. How do you allocate your capital resources in the same sort of way, right? And and those who do this really well are reallocating capital at a much higher rate, both in terms of frequency and percent than those who aren't, right? And so when we think about the degree of change, how, how many of us, how often is the budget just last year's plus or minus a little, right? And this is about taking quite a radically different view, almost a clean sheet view each time and saying, given where we're going, where should we put, be putting our money? What does that need to look like? And frankly, doing that more frequently than annually, right? And so you're really placing your money where the mouth is in terms of big bets, where we're going, what does that look like? For some of these multi-year journeys, as Michael was describing, you need to you know, be investing appropriately now so that in years three, four, and five, that's bearing fruit. Um, again, Michael, I know you've, you've seen this movie a few times in terms of allocating capital, but we're talking about something meaningfully different than just tweaking on the yeah. market. Well, I, I, exactly, Karen. I mean, I think we, you know, when, we, when we look at the research, it's pretty much 50% over 10 years, right? So I, I sometimes call it the, the up-for-grab score, right? So if you, if you think about three different business units, business unit A always gets 20% of capital, business unit B always gets 10 Business units, he always gets in that 10-year period 30, right? Um, 20, 10, 30, you get 60%. That means 40% is up for grabs, right? And what we what we find is essentially when you look at capital reallocation on companies that perform substantially better, right, or move up as power curve of economic profit, right, that move up to the to the top quintile on that power curve, 
they are reallocating essentially about half their capital, right? So over a 10-year period. So you're a very different company at the end than at the start. So we've talked about financial capital, but you know, what are some of the ways that leaders can also reallocate human capital to those long-term priorities that will deliver the biggest returns over that time period? Absolutely. And, and this is one where the strategy and the organization and talent deployment have to come together really clearly. When you have this vision of where you're headed and a clear view of where is the value going to come from, right? When you look strategically at the big moves you're making and where growth is going to come from, where the, the new build-out for your organization is, how do you then take that and quite systematically say, so what are the 50 to 100 roles that will matter most? And I, I purposely am saying roles, not people, right? Because you start with what are the pivotal roles that are going to be essential where we can't afford not to have A players or A-plus teams in those roles because, you know, growing in Asia or building out this new electric vehicle market or whichever pieces of our strategy are so key, we can't afford not to have our best people in those roles. And then having your talent and workforce planning directly plugging into that. And so if you don't have your best people in the areas that are most critical for driving value, you know, that's a problem. And it's funny because often CEOs will spend a lot of time thinking about their top team, but do they know the 50 other roles in the organization where they should have a good view of the pipeline of the leader in that role and stay on top of it because, frankly, it's a strategic asset? Then there's the broader question of just moving arms and legs, right, moving the, the human capital required to get some of this work done. And you're right, with, with the dollar allocation often comes the resources that go with that, and that's when you get into these notions of agile organizations and how do you, just as you have your capital that's up for grabs and moving around, how do you have a pool of people that can be pivoted onto the highest and best use projects that can form and reform teams quickly as opposed to getting struck, stuck in a hierarchical org structure that's quite fixed. And we're seeing a lot more organizations free up significant portions of their human capital to be able to move around and be, be flexible and pointed towards these things. Michael, have, have you seen some ways that CEO clients actually accomplish this talent mobility within their organizations? Yeah, well, I, I mean, the one thing that um, I've seen and also pushed a bunch of clients to do is this notion exactly if you were saying is think of the variety of resources, right? So often those two conversations, as you're saying, they happen with different people in different rooms, right? Um, and maybe the CEO's in both rooms, but a bunch of others aren't. Um, and so I actually say, look, think about all your resources that matter and how you're reallocating them. So do this sort of corporate resource map that says, look, what's my capital expenditure? Um, actually, if I'm marketing-oriented, where am I reallocating my marketing dollars? Where am I reallocating my senior talent, my top talent, which my most sort of high-potential you know, folks who may be earlier in their career? By the way, CEO time as well, right? If I'm making a book, big push into a new market or, for example, this CEO I was referring to earlier, the point was about how does he pivot a bunch of his time from Horizon 1 to Horizon 3 just as he might be also pivoting some of the organizations. So I think the more we can do to make the conversation about resources holistic across a variety of resources, and then the reallocation consistent across those different types, um, the more powerful it will, it will be. And I think that's massively under-leveraged in most organizations. So how would you advise CEOs to bring the board onto the same page in terms of these performance horizons? 
think there is often this this time lag where the markets will start rewarding the decisions and efforts that you're making. And I think a lot of what Michael talked about in terms of making the data-driven case for it, but then also engaging the board. We often talk about how do you help the board engage and help the business, right? What is it, and some folks, some CEOs have been, and this varies by geography in terms of how much you can do it, but certainly in North America where the CEO is also the chair or working closely with the chair, thinking about the composition of the board itself, right? So one of my new CEO clients, when they stepped in and, and she saw that she needed to take a real strategic pivot with the company, looked up and looked at the board and said, but this was the board for the old company. And so as she started looking at the tenure of the board members and how they were going to roll over, she worked with her chair to be quite deliberate about bringing talent into the board that would have the long-term view, that would have the global experience she needed, and that frankly had experience in the kind of long-term transformation that she was aiming for. And over time, they were able to evolve the board, not only to be a board that was aligned with a longer-term way of thinking, but also that would bring in the skills and experience that would be most helpful for her as a chief executive. And so thinking about that quite creatively as well, do you have the board that you need to go in this journey, knowing that you can't, you know, just swap everyone out, obviously. Um, and then for those that you have, how are you going to bring them along and build the case and tap into their expertise in, in really deliberate ways? So thank you, Carolyn. Can, can you go into a little bit more detail there? I think our listeners would love to hear how long that transformation took to reorient the board toward the long term. Absolutely. I mean, it is obviously a multi-year transformation given, given the terms. In this particular case, there was a couple of, couple of levers that she pulled. One was she had room to expand the board. So there were actually a few empty seats, and within the mandate, she had room that she could add a few early. Um, and so that was one thing that, you know, even bringing two or three new voices into the board can pivot the discussion and pivot the orientation. And then looking methodically as the terms wound down to think about and get ahead of who the candidates might be and starting to cultivate them in advance so that as those, those opportunities came up, she was ready. But also working really closely with the board chair. And I think this is a relationship that's so critical. Um, and having the board chair be helpful in guiding the conversations in the boardroom as well, both between the meetings and in the meeting themselves, and, and being able to shift the tone of the conversation to say, you know, here are our markers of success. Here is where we want to take the company, and what does that look like? So there was a lot of parallel conversation that happened that wasn't just the presentation in the boardroom. Um, that was sort of quite, quite skillfully guiding that agenda. And, and Carolyn, just a couple of reflections on what you were saying, which, you know, I totally agree with both the importance of the board and some of the, the tactics that your CEO client was using. A couple of other thoughts. One is two of the CEOs I've been working with, as they came in to their tenure, they also thought about how can we use you know, a variety of external either perspectives or experiences or, and bring them into the boardroom that might change how the board are thinking. So whether it's the, you know, the classic kind of mega trends um, and where is the world going, right? And, and have a third party do that versus the, the chief exec or the head of strategy or something, because it can, it can have a different stance or it can be more provocative or it might have differential credibility. Or are there, you know, go and seize or something? Can we have our next board meeting in Silicon Valley and we do all the governance stuff, but we also see how the world is changing? That creates more space in the board, changes their mindset, but then allows exactly as you were saying, 
the, the conversation with the uh, with the board chair where you can say, so you and I, we're all aligned. There are three people who perhaps whose tenures are coming up who maybe as we replace them, we look for people who deepen us in this area or that area that we've now jointly realized is so important. You mentioned Silicon Valley. Do you find digital as having an impact in terms of one's ability to take this long-term view and the importance of doing so? Because obviously digital moves really quickly and many companies are having to make dramatic shifts just to survive, not only in the long term, but in the short term. It's a really interesting question, uh, Sean. I think there are a few phenomena, right? So if you take traditional retail, for example, um, it is being massively disrupted quickly by digital and how you know our clients and other organizations how they respond, how they get their online uh, and omni-channel offers working, how you literally optimize the details of that very quickly, that's sort of massively significant. Second is, though, that there are a bunch of things where essentially people are building, let's say, platforms, right? And we talk about the ecosystem economy, platforms, um, and, you know, where there is a logic in investing hard up front to win the future. Right. So, so essentially where there are these network effects, a race to scale, um, actually, in many ways, that is classically, don't worry about the short term. Don't worry about short term profitability built for the long term. Now, that is also a recipe for enormous value destruction if the strategy isn't in place. Right. If there aren't real, true network effects, it isn't a winner, take most market with some degree of lock in. You know, I think there's a lot of oh, digital as a, as a buzzword. I think sometimes it means that you know, price discrimination is going to become much more sophisticated. Sometimes it means the fixed costs of bricks and mortar are going to be unsustainable. Sometimes it means the market is going to move to winner-takes-all dynamics as a result of increasing returns to scale, leveraging. It allows you to think about how does it how do I strategically respond? Some of which is short term, but I think on the ecosystem stuff, it is about allowing yourself time to invest significantly to to secure the long-term future, which can be, as we know, very, very value-creating once you make it happen. Got it. So what areas will you take this research into next? Sure. This is part of a broader set of research against the four stages of the CEO journey, right? And so part of this is for new CEOs, what does it look like? But then following that journey, so at the mid-tenure point, right, what are the moments of truth that are going to come up? You've done your big, bold moves in the early year or two. You're now, you know, you've seen the performance lift. You're starting there. What does the next S-curve look like? What does it look like? And what are the triggers as a mid-tenure CEO to know whether you're on the right path and whether you're balancing this short- and long-termism appropriately? Um, activist investors, how do you think about that? How do you think about disruptions in your market and how you'll react in those moments? So we're really doing a deep dive into some of those particular moments and, and what works and what doesn't work, what's the winning formula in reaction to that. And then also backing up the truck all the way to before you were a CEO, what are the capabilities and skills, the experiences you want to be gathering so that when you're in the shoe, those shoes, you're ready to be able to, to make this happen and what does it look like to, to get prepared. And so both the bookends of before your CEO and in that mid-tenure moments of truth is, is where we're extending on it on two sides. 
Yeah, well, and, and just to highlight one particular element on some of this long-termism, I think we're also uh, now going um, much deeper into environmental social governance and sustainability type topics linked to value creation. I mean, we've, we've always, as a firm, had, had a lot, I think, to say on sustainability, but what I've what I've observed is actually I spend a fair amount of time with CFOs who, you know, literally 18 months ago were, you know, don't talk to me about that, right? Are now, hang on, my investors are hitting me very hard on this question. Um, how do I really think about it with a, a link to value creation with a, with a degree of rigor? And so I think we're doing other research on purpose, embedding purpose, environmental social governance uh, and sustainability. Uh, topics as well. Carolyn, Michael, thank you so much. That was great. Um, And thank you to our listeners for joining us inside the strategy room. A transcript of today's podcast will be posted on McKinsey.com under the strategy and corporate finance practice page, where you can also find links to previous sessions. And if you'd like to receive our latest insights, you can sign up for email updates on our website, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with our community on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to having you join us again soon on our next podcast, Inside the Strategy Room.